If you would, turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 2 as we continue our journey uh, in this Advent series, as we look at Matthew chapters 1 and 2 and see how Matthew's um, gospel on the Advent is unique. And one of the things that's unique about this is his emphasis upon um, the answer of prophecy and the answer of prophecy specifically that Jesus is the Davidic king. He is the one who's come in the Davidic lineage to fulfill those promises way back from 2 Samuel 7. Uh, he's, he's fulfilling promises in terms of the Abrahamic covenant. He's fulfilling promises that we, we saw from Micah chapter 5, 2 Samuel chapter 5, uh, Hosea 11. There's an amazing amount of, of things that are fulfilled just in these two chapters. And so we want to make sure that we're kind of keeping that in view because Matthew's point is to say this is the Davidic king who has come to reign over all, every tongue, tribe, and nation. And that's a really important thing for us to remember as a church, because I think it's an easy thing for us to forget. What is the mission of the church? Why are we here? We're not here as William Still, who's Scottish, and so we know the Scots can sometimes be a little cranky and say it a little harsh, but church is not for the entertaining of goats. It is for the, the upbuilding, encouragement, and bringing in of the sheep. And so we've got to be careful because sometimes I think we can sound pretty goat-like uh, in, in wanting to be entertained or wanting to be, um, have our needs met. And, and, you know, I've been talking with a lot of friends lately that are parents and even a friend of mine who's a, a missionary in Honduras. We've been talking about this idea of entitlement and how it's in the air that we seem to breathe. And, and for those of you who are parents, sometimes you're wondering, uh, I don't know what to, what to do to, to help wash this out of you, but it's in us too, isn't it? We too are entitled and we've taught them. We've taught them with the ways in which we handle our time, talents, gifts, and the ways in which we have certain demands that we think should and shouldn't happen all based upon our own things that we think ought to happen. And let me just say, you are terrible in charge of your own sanctification. You will not grow being in charge of your own sanctification. None of us will. In fact, that's oftentimes why challenge is so good for us. So it's so, so good for us to be sometimes put into the furnace of affliction because what comes out on the other side is somehow richer than what went in. Doesn't mean we enjoy the furnace, no, does it? Doesn't mean that we enjoy this time of waiting or this time of not knowing. And yet we can trust because the Lord has answered so many of these things. This is the beauty of Matthew's gospel is it says that he's answered things that were said thousands of years ago and they have come to full fruition to signal to us that he is good and he is patient and he is kind and he loves us, amen? So that's the beauty of Matthew's gospel. So as we look at this chapter two this morning, we're gonna see some interesting things. It's an aspect of the story that we're probably pretty familiar with, and yet there's some aspects of it that our nativity scenes get wrong. Now, I'm not here to make you go home and cut up your nativity scene and throw half of it away. I don't want you to do that. Uh, this is not the point of this. I don't take pleasure in kind of ruining Christmas cheer. Some of you may think I do. Uh, I really don't. Uh, I've come to love Christmas. Um, and so, so there's just some, but there's some things that we need to know that actually make this story, I think, richer and deeper and more poignant to us. So as we come this morning, I want to ask this question, because I think this is a pretty important question. What is the focus of biblical prophecy in the Old Testament? It really has but one focus. What is it? To, to tell of the coming Christ, but even more importantly, to glorify the Lord God. 
to show that he who has promised is faithful. It's even about more than just Christ. It's actually about God the Father who said, I will redeem my people. Isaiah 53 is not just about Jesus. It's about God. It's about the God who sends him to bear the brunt of our stripes so that we may be healed. Never forget, we are not being saved from God. We are being saved to God. So all of Old Testament prophecy has within its bounds the, the focus and the function of glorifying God and showing that he is who he says he is and will do what he said he would do according to his will and in his own time. Now, so often we kind of get this sideways, don't we? When we talk about prophecy, we, we want to predict things, and we like to, like we're, we're wondering if it, who's the Antichrist? Is it, is it Putin? Is it Trump? Is it Obama? Is it Hillary? Is it, uh, I, I don't know, who could rise? Uh, is it Assad? Is it, was it, who is, that's, that's silliness. That's not the Bible's utterly unconcerned. Remember, in the lineage of Jesus, the genealogy we saw, did the good kings matter more than the bad kings? And did the bad kings matter more than the good kings? No. In fact, none of them mattered compared to the will of the Lord, which was going to go forward regardless of what they did. Remember, the good kings couldn't make it last, and the bad kings couldn't keep it from happening. And amen. So prophecy is, is never about the prognostication of things for solely for our good so that we could say, I know something you don't know. No, it's always for the purpose of, of being able to say, I know the God who will keep his promise and is faithful. Much like Paul said at Mars Hill when he said, I know the God of which you write about and speak. Let me tell you about him. That's what it's always for. And that's helpful to us as we look at these things. Um, there's, a, there's a particular prophecy that um, I, I don't have a lot of time to unpack, but I think it's important for us to touch on because <laughs> if you're like me, you probably haven't read numbers very closely much in your biblical walk. And if you have, well, good on to you. You're awesome. Uh, but there is a particular prophecy that we need to touch on, uh, and it comes from Numbers 24, 17. Listen to what it says. Now, the person who's saying this is a guy named Balaam. Remember, he's the one with the talking donkey that probably inspired Shrek at some level. I don't know. I'm just guessing. I'm hoping so. Uh, but Balaam was essentially a magi. He was a Gentile magi. He was a, a prophetic seer, one who kings would seek out wisdom from. And so he was in the lineage of the Gentile magi. And there was a king for the Moabites, Balak, who came to him and said, hey, I need for you to say some bad things about Israel and some good things about Moab and, and for that to stick, okay? And I'm going to pay you some money to do it. And remember what Balaam said. He said, I can't do that. And three times over, Balaam tried to tell him, I, I can't do what you're asking me to do, even though, even though this is a God that I don't necessarily know. I can't go against him. He's way too powerful. Heck, he makes donkeys talk. And so in this third oracle, listen to what he says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, which is an instrument of a king, shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. Now this is 
considered to be the prophecy with which the Magi, because people wonder, how did the Magi know about the star? Well, this, this is the prophecy that says there will be a star that will rise that will signal to the nations that the king has come from Israel. So keep that in mind as we step back into the story, looking at chapter two. If you would hear the word of the Lord, we'll start with the first two verses. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men or magi from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Let me unpack a couple things about who the Magi are. Now, wise men is actually a bit of a misnomer. Um, the reason that they're called wise men is oftentimes kings would seek from them some sort of divine saying. So they were big on astrology and astronomy. So they, they looked to the stars. They would have used the stars to prognosticate things. It was not uncommon to think that certain stars were linked to certain kings. And, and so this is not something that's beyond the pale of reason. And so these, these magi were not kings. They were advisors to kings. So it's not that we don't, shouldn't sing we three kings anymore, uh, but it's actually not entirely accurate because they're not kings. They're just wise men. And there's probably more than three of them. Well, where does that come from? The three comes from the number of gifts, but it was probably a larger entourage that showed up because it actually caught Herod's attention. Just three guys showing up out of the east looking for some baby king in a manger somewhere probably would not have, have signaled anything to him at all. But an entourage showing up that would be an advisory back to the king, back where they came from, which was probably somewhere in Babylon or Iraq. They were coming from the east. They were Arabian. Um, th that would have gotten his attention. That would have said to him, wait a minute. Somebody else is taking this seriously, and so I think we probably should too, and we'll see in just a minute some of how he approaches that. But these, these magi would have, been, would, have, would have known about this star from Numbers 24. They would have known that it signaled that there was someone who was coming. And notice what they say. They don't say that he is the king of the Jews because we have come. No, he is what? Born king of the Jews. It's not that anyone made him king. He is born king. He is king from his birth. That's why Matthew takes so much time to give us that genealogy is so that this statement would make sense. This is the one who is born king of the Jews, and we know that from that genealogy, right? We know that he is the Davidic king who has come, and they know it too. In fact, only pagans use the term born king or king of the Jews. Where else does this show up, this title? anybody remember? Shows up over the cross. Interesting foreshadowing. They're looking for the one who will be crucified. They don't yet know it, but Matthew is signaling to us, this is the one who has come to die on our behalf. This is the one who will have that same placard as these men are coming from the east to worship him, to, to show his greatness. There will come a time when that same phrase will be an epithet, almost a curse word painted above him in mockery. But not mockery in reality now, is it? Because that's what he came to do. And so they are actually fulfilling by coming a number of Old Testament prophecies, one of which we read in Psalm 22. All of the prophecies that say that nations that I have not called will come, these Gentile nations are coming, this is signaling 
that the Davidic king, the Abrahamic son, the one who is ushering in the kingdom in which will be every tongue, tribe, and nation, this is coming to fruition. So there's a gift that the Magi actually gives to us, a great gift. Now think about this for a second. In Jewish culture, um, how were uh, those who sought the stars and were seers Magicians, if you will, what were they thought of? What did the law say you were supposed to do with a magician or a seer? Play Magic the Gathering with him? No, kill him. They were not viewed high on the totem pole here. And we also run into them again in the book of Daniel. You, you see that the, the king calls all of his magi, his diviners and his seers, to speak against Daniel or to speak, uh, to try to interpret his dream. And they don't, they don't do very well. And what do he do with them? What do you do with a bad seer? You get rid of him too. Even the Gentiles understood that. And so these were not folks that would have been welcome among the Jews to become the people of God. And yet... In the book of Matthew, who gets to come first? The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. That is great hope to us who feel like, and, and, and listen, just because I'm the pastor doesn't mean I don't feel the weight of this sometimes. If you don't think that there are days where I wonder what in the world am I doing in the position that I'm in, who gave me this microphone and why? Who gave me this mantle? Who am I to get up and try to share anything with anyone else given the darkness and the brokenness of my own history and heart? I don't have the pedigree to stand up here before you. I don't have the lineage. I don't have the patience. I don't have any of what's necessary to be here except for union with Christ except that the last would be first and the first would be last. And so that's good news for you too because there's many of you who feel, what am I doing here? Who am I? How, can I, how in the world could I ever share my faith with anyone else when I, I struggle so hard to believe? I struggle so hard to parent. I struggle so hard to love my spouse. I struggle so hard to even do my job. I struggle so hard to love my neighbor. I struggle so hard to read my Bible. I struggle so hard to show up for worship, period, and get anything out of it. Who am I that I could come and offer anything? And the gift of the Magi is this. You have been declared worthy from before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1. That you who had no shot whatsoever, no reason to come, have been granted. In this witnessing of the Magi who would come, the least of these, the ones who had no business showing up. You, you have that same promise and faithful God pursuing you. Amen? It's not about what we have to bring. It's not about how good we are coming. I remember having a conversation with a guy one time. He said, you know, I'll, I'll go, go to church when I get some things in order. And to quote Derek Webb, if you tarry until you're able, you will never come at all. If you wait to share the truth of this gospel until you've got it all together, guess what you will never, ever, ever do? 
you will never share it. If you wait until you've got certain things in order to use your gifts within the kingdom, within the local church context, guess what you're never going to do? Ask any of our elders. They're all, and, and I don't think I'm putting them out here, but they're all on the verge of quitting at any given moment because they feel unworthy. Because they, they feel the tension of, how do I balance my job, my family, uh, the issues I have going on around me, my shepherding group, Cameron, uh, and any of these, any of these things. I try to be quiet and not cause too much trouble. But any of these things, how do they balance all of that and love well and feel like they're not cheating on everybody around them in some way, shape, or form? Now, any of us who are on staff, Josh can say this. Bonnie can say this. Matt has gone through it. Matt continues to serve while working a night shift and having a young family. God bless him for doing that. Doesn't, it doesn't mean he's awesome, but he's hung in there and he hasn't put all the rest of us out. And same thing for Whitney and same thing for all who serve. We all, as you need to know, and it, it doesn't mean we need to be on medication. It doesn't mean we, doesn't mean we need to hire a staff counselor. You just need to know that we struggle just as you do. We're human too. And what the Magi tell us is that it's not about you coming when you have it all together. It's you coming with all that you are and all that's broken and not figured out and being welcome to come. Because where else are you going to learn? Where are you going to get it together if not here? How in the world can we as a church not be the safest place in the world for those who are broken and questioning and doubting? I struggle with this all the time. How can we turn this corner so that if someone came in here and didn't have it all together and it was all messed up and backwards, would they feel comfortable in our midst? How could we love them through such a process as that? Well, it starts probably by us being honest about where we are. So often we're just trying to make sure that you, you don't think anything's going on and that nobody knows so that I don't have to actually have to deal with it or fix it. We don't really want to know each other, if we're honest. Because to know each other means to cross a line, to cross a boundary, right? And, and, then, and then something's got to be dealt with. Certainly, if you let me know, I, I'm going to mess with you. You could, you could wind up a sermon illustration for crying out loud. It's probably more for my family. They're at higher risk, I think. So, then Magi gives us this great gift, this great example from the Lord our God that all are welcome who want to come and grow in their knowledge and worship of the king. How much Bible do these guys know as they come? They just know there's a star and there's a, there's, there's a, a Jewish king born somewhere. That's it. That's all they got coming. Right? That's all they got to come and worship the king. And the Lord uses that star. He uses their own kind of misperceptions about astrology and astronomy to draw them to his word and then draw them to his king. Listen to what D.A. Carson says about this passage. He says, where is the one born king of the Jews? Jesus, kingly status was not conferred on him later on. It was from birth. Jesus' participation in the Davidic dynasty has already been established by genealogy, the same title the Magi gave him found its place over the cross, 2737. So all of us are seeking something. Let's just be honest. We all are. And Advent is one of those seasons that seems to highlight this seeking of, of some, for some reason. It, it tends to bring out whatever you're seeking in terms of your family, right? 
Because the holidays really kind of bring out whatever's bubbling below the familial surface. It comes rising up, either bubbling up like mud or bursting forth like some sort of geyser. And Advent's also that time where you hope people recognize you and you hope you get something nice and maybe you're seeking a gift of some kind. It, it, this is the thing I hate the most when Susan comes to me and says, hey, I need your list. I don't need anything. I don't even want anything, hardly. And anything I want, nobody can afford. So, so it's just miserable. So, so here's a good question. And it's a great time to reflect upon it. What are you seeking? What are you seeking in this life? And if you got it, is it going to make you a better person in terms of maturing in Christ? Is it going to make you more able to glorify God if you receive whatever it is you're seeking? Or are you running the great risk of obtaining an idol that will destroy you? This is the great risk in anything that we want deeply. It's the thing that I pray for the streets as they want a child. I, I, I even pray for them, Lord, when you are faithful and grant it to them, let it not be an idol that would cause them any great, greater dissonance and hurt. Everything we seek has the great risk, doesn't it? Except for one thing, and that's Christ himself. So this Advent season, are you seeking to grow in your union with Christ and mature so that you can better glorify the Lord? Because that's what we're going to see in the Magi in short order. They're going to go from being these, these just seers and, and people who are left out to being some of the, giving us one of the greatest pictures of worship we've ever seen. If you would, turn with me back to the text. And let's look at uh, verses three through eight and see Herod's beginning, the beginning of Herod's response. When Herod the king heard this, meaning the Magi had come in their entourage, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who, shall, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the Magi secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, Bring me word that I too may come and worship. Think about this, the Herod here and the response of Jerusalem. They're the folks who have the word of the Lord. Herod, you need to know, was Jewish not by birth. His father's Idumean and his mother's Arabian. They converted to Judaism. So he would have some familiarity with the texts. He was Greek in culture and Roman in politics, so he really was an interesting sort of Renaissance man for that time. And so he would, have, he would have known of these things. And notice it's not just he who's troubled, who else is troubled? All of Jerusalem. Now why in the world would all of Jerusalem be troubled that the thing that God had promised was now coming to pass? They read from Micah 5 and 2 Samuel 5 to say that he is in Bethlehem or he was born in Bethlehem. 
Now, why do you think it is that the Jews would be upset that the Lord was actually doing what he said he would do? Well, here's the trouble. It doesn't really tell us in toto. So what I'm about to say is, uh, put it in small caps and an asterisk next to it. It's conjecture, if you will, but I think it's human nature. See, I think what had happened is, is that they had found a livable peace in what they had, right? But under Roman rule, they could practice their religion. Now, they couldn't stone you to death. They couldn't do capital punishment like they used to like to. But if they pushed hard enough, Rome would kill you, as we find out with Christ. But they were able to do what they were able to do. They, they were fine in captivity. Now, where have we seen this before? Where is there a shadow of this well, again, we have to go back to that book of Numbers that we don't read very often. And we would discover that when the people are delivered from Egypt, they spend the majority of their time praising the Lord as they were designed to do, right? It's nothing. Numbers is just a book. It's a praise and worship book if you've read it. No, I'm lying to you. It's not. Don't approach it that way because you'll die there. It is actually a book of great complaint. In fact, it's one of the hardest books to get through because you just want to be God and kill them. You want to go back in history and just blot them out so you don't have to read this stuff anymore. But they keep saying, are there not enough graves in Egypt? Is that why you brought us into the wilderness so that we could die here instead of there? I kind of liked what the Egyptians fed us. I'm tired of this manna and quail. We don't even have any water. Even the water came from the rock. Even though they were well provided for and had freedom to worship and become what it was that God had destined and designed them to be. And yet it wasn't enough for them. They were entitled. They were filled with complaining. They liked the devil they knew. Now, how many of us are perfectly okay being in the captivity that we're in and the devil that we know who rules over us who says, listen, there's a way for this to stay okay. Now you go messing around and we're going to have to kill a few people. Remember, if you notice, most tyranny, that's how it works. You, you oppress a large number to kind of get everybody whipped into fear and then you make them think that you're the best thing's ever happened to them. That's what's happened, I think, here, is they think that Herod is probably the best thing's happened to him. And if this king comes, there's going to be war. War that they don't want to fight. War that they don't want to, they don't want to engage in. They don't want their, the, the peace that they have purchased by their own hand and understanding to be upset. And let me tell you something, we're not that different. This is why many of us don't read our Bibles very often because we know if we do, we're probably going to run across something that means we're going to have to change how we live. And the best way to deal with that is just don't do it and ask for forgiveness later. And we presume upon God's grace as if he's just up there going, well, you funny kids. We do it in ways we don't put ourselves in positions where we can be stretched and grow and we're all the time cutting ourselves off from difficulty or, or difficult circumstances and we don't abide with one another because we don't trust the word to do what it said it would do. One of the areas that I find the most crippling pastorally is Matthew 18. 
And the unwillingness of when people have an issue with one another, an utter unwillingness to practice Matthew 18. Now this, uh, my, my mentor, Tom Anderson, talked about it and said it was, it's been the same for him for 30 years. Anytime somebody actually practices Matthew 18, the scent and the aroma of the gospel is beautiful. But he's seen it practiced so few times, so few times that the stench of death hangs in the air all the time. And it, and, it, and it says something about us, doesn't it? It says that we love the devil we know. We love the tyranny of the unknown. We love kind of what we have right here. And our first reaction, let's draw everything in. Let's just get real close in and push everything else out and have our own brokered peace and safety. And all it is is slow suicide, death. So I think that's their issue too. It's something worth us asking the Lord to show us. And if you would, join me in praying this prayer, not right now, but over the Lord's day. Lord, would you show me the places where I have become comfortable with the devil I know? Where I have grown to be comfortable with what little bit of scripture I know and no more? Lord, are there ways in which I am refusing to be stretched and grow and sanctified. And so here, Herod, who knows it, and all of Jerusalem who knows the word, they choose instead to ignore it. And notice something, Herod takes very seriously this prophecy. He knows he's not natural born. He knows he's not in the Davidic lineage. He knows that if this king comes, his reign is over. What's interesting is that he takes it seriously in, in the wrongest way possible. He takes it seriously, and think about this for a second. If God said a thousand years ago that a king would come, and Herod hears that this king has come from a thousand years ago, why would he think for a moment that he could eclipse the power of that God who said something a thousand years ago and is bringing it to pass today? Can you see the arrogance now ask yourself the same question. How is it that you hear all the things that you hear in the scriptures and yet there's times you say, no, I'm not gonna do that. I don't care what anybody says. And you set your face like flint against the truth of forgiveness in the gospel. As if you could overcome the God who created you, who knows every fiber of your being, who knew you long before you were ever a twinkle in anyone's eye. You're going to overcome him with your disobedience, with your unwillingness to trust him. You're going to, you're going to usurp him. You're going to eclipse the cross. No. No, actually, you're not. What you will eclipse is what he, what he would long for for your life. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, remember? He takes no pleasure in the punishment of his sons and daughters either, but he does both because they're necessary. And yet, what are we robbing ourselves of day in and day out as we, like Herod and all of Jerusalem, are troubled by the truth of the gospel and all that it contains? Listen at what uh, Frederick Dale Bruner says of this passage. He says, the despised astrologers who have nothing but their natural idols are led to Israel, who has the written word of God. And when this word is heard by both groups, it is the pagans who follow it. 
It is the pagans who follow it. While the leadership of the people of God, not the people of God itself, note well, sit complacently or conspiratorially at home. Outsiders believe the word. Insiders ignore it. Thomas Manton said that atheists are made by divisions in the church. Now, that's not completely true, but it is true enough that it ought to rattle us a little bit. I, as a radical anti-theist, oftentimes pointed to, you guys can't even agree what the book says, and worse, the parts I understand you don't even do. How often is that the charge leveled against us? People who say, I'm not even a believer, but I see here, you all ought to forgive each other. And you don't. You all ought to love one another sacrificially, and you don't. You all ought to love the poor, over 300 passages, mind you, and you don't. You all ought to love opportunity and, and, and things that happen that go wrong because it's fertile ground for the gospel, and you don't. You do everything you can to avoid everything that's biblical, it seems. Now, that's a heavy charge. It's not entirely true, so don't hear it that way, but let it rattle you where it ought to rattle you. Let it push in on you where it ought to push in on you so that you recognize where the Lord is actually trying to help you to grow because he loves you. Because he loves Herod too, you understand. If he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, he will not take pleasure in the death of Herod. And he would rather that Herod would turn and repent and live. Now, how do I know that? Anybody ever heard of a guy named Saul that became a guy named Paul? Did he not murder the very saints of God? And yet the Lord was pleased to receive him on the day that he went blind and was confronted with the greatest thing he'd ever seen. So we know that the Lord desires for the worst of the worst to come in. He desires that we would trust his, his word, that we would be a people quick to practice what's clear there's so much that's clear that we try to make murky and that we just refuse. So this begs the question, what is your view of the word of God? Is it, is it that it's kind of like a, a cookbook, an instruction book? You just go to it when you need a, a verse to kind of support whatever it is that you've come up with. Because I'll quote Homer Simpson here, and I've watched 12 Seconds, and this was in a preview, but I thought it was pretty spot on. It looked like the world was ending in this movie, the Simpson movie. And he goes to the church seeking answers. And he flips open the book and he goes through and he says, there's no answers in here. Because again, it was the way that he approached it. He approached it like it was a cookbook, like there was a, a problem to solve. Therefore, you go to the Bible to find the solution to the problem. Now, some of you are saying, is Jesus not the solution, Cameron? Yes, he is, which is the whole story of the Bible, but it's bigger than, it. he's a math equation, right? Remember from Job, is it simple math? No, far more complex than that, which is why the Magi are here and the Jews are staying home. So what is your view of the word of God? Is it, is it authoritative over your life? Is some of it in play, some of it's out of play? How much effort should you exert in trying to understand it? I've said this before, and I want to say it again. If your uh, devotional and Bible study methods do not expand over your lifetime, you will not grow. You cannot, 
You cannot keep reading Oswald, and I love Oswald Chambers, by the way, so don't, don't get mad at me. And I still read it, but it's not my main diet. But you can't do my atmosphere's highest the whole of your days. It will, you, you can only grow so far. You can't do daily bread most of your days. You can't only read the Psalms or only do the Proverbs or only read the Gospels and grow. You just can't. At some points, you've got to dig down deeper. You've got to find your way into First and Second Kings and Numbers and all these places, and that's not straight away. But it's in those places that you will see the magnificence of the grace of God in ways that you can't see it any other way. And you'll know actually what the Gospels are talking about. We had professors who would say, if you don't know the first five books of the Bible, which always terrified me because to know them, was that, how much do I need to know? If you don't know the first five books of the Bible, you can't understand the Gospels and you dang sure can't understand the book of Revelation because it's all imagery from there. So it's as if you're walking in on the, the middle part of the movie. It's as if you to nerd out just for a second. It's as if you watched The Empire Strikes Back and thought you understood the whole story. You can't. There's no way to understand the whole story if you walk in on just The Empire Strikes Back. I know because we just watched four, five, and six to prepare for what's coming, seven. That's as nerdy as you're ever gonna catch me being on that. So... Are you complacent toward the word of God? Are you, what's your, what's your view? Is it, are you active toward it? Is, it? is it the sharp edged sword it's intended to be? Does it pierce you at times to bone and marrow? After 15 years of reading it, I study it all the time. I spent seven years studying it in seminary, not because I'm slow, but seminary was slow. They just couldn't offer the classes fast enough. That's not true. I was working full time. But I've studied it and I still... Just even reading something this past week from 2 Kings 1 was greatly affected by something that was in there, deeply moved. I love the fact that the word continues to speak and shape and guide and lead and point me toward worship. Notice, the Magi have come following a star. The Lord leads them to his word so that he can lead them to Christ. Let's look back at the text, verses 9 through 12, as we finish out this morning. <laughs> After listening to the king, they being the magi, went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Notice the star continues to be in play. And I know that some of you are like, how does that work? Well, listen, here's how it works. Genesis 1 and 2. God made those stars and he tells them to stand where he will have them stand. And notice he does it to draw them to the king, not just for their edification. And notice that they're overjoyed and rejoice exceedingly because God is with them. This is not just that it's a star that's, that's there because they're astrologers. It's a star that represents God's presence. And they will soon be in the presence of the one born king of the Jews. And so they're, they're already excited before they even get there. 
And then when they show up and finally see this child, notice what they do. They, they act in a way as if they are in the presence of a king. They fall down and worship a baby. And then they open up their treasures and break out gold and frankincense and myrrh. And this stuff ain't cheap. Those of you who do doTERRA oils, you know, frankincense just ain't cheap these days. Now, some people make a lot of hay out of what those things mean. Does each one of them relate to something? And maybe they do, maybe they don't. The Bible doesn't really tell us. I'm not going to make any hay out of it because I just don't see enough there to do it. But what it does tell us is that they recognize they're in the presence of royalty. They are in the presence of someone who is worthy of worship. And they bow down. And notice how good the Lord is to them. He warns them to go back a different way so that Herod cannot find them. And what do you think they're going to do when they get back east? They're going to be quiet about all this, right? They're not going to share this with anybody. No, they're going to tell everybody they know and prepare the way for someone who will come later, a guy named Paul, who will go on a missionary journey. They will prepare the way for the word of the Lord to be heard and those to come into the family of the Lord in, in far-off places. Amen? So these guys are fulfilling essentially the Abrahamic covenant, which says that every nation will be blessed, which is why Matthew takes so much time to call him the son of David and son of Abraham. Listen to what R.T. France, who's a New Testament scholar, says of this passage. He says, for these foreign dignitaries to prostrate themselves in homage before a child in an ordinary house in Bethlehem is a remarkable illustration of the reversal of the world's values which will become such a prominent feature of the Messiah's proclamation of the kingdom of heaven. See, this is a completely opposite of what we would do. This is completely opposite of what our culture would say do. In fact, it's interesting. How does our culture view children? Well, what does Planned Parenthood say? What does that whole phenomena say to us? That we think about children. What does the fact that the foster care system is 40% larger this year than last say about our value in society for children? What does it say that if every church in America just fostered and adopted one child, we could empty the foster care system and yet she remains full? What does that say about what we think of children in our culture? And on the other side, we idolize them in this weird way that, that we don't want them to suffer anything that we suffered but so that they don't become anything like we are or learn how to problem solve or do anything else. We just want to wrap them in bubble wrap and ensure that nothing happens, thus creating an entire generation of entitled and neurotic beings if we're not careful. So do we really love them if that's what we're doing? Is that love to make someone into something that can't worship the Lord their God? So they are recognizing that in this child is the hope of the world and that nothing they have is worth keeping back from him because everything they have will be returned in measures beyond what they can comprehend. Not in essence that they get more gold, but they get more life and life more abundant. Would that we would have the same attitude. So notice what they were seeking. Notice how the Lord used his word to take them to what they were seeking and notice what it was that they found. So the last question I have for us this morning is, 
What have you found so far this Advent season? We're all seeking something, and it's worth us thinking about. What have you found so far? That might be a question you need to write and stick it away somewhere and ask yourself in the new year. What did you seek, and what did you find? And how did it affect you? How did it shape you? So what do we learn from this passage? First, that Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled in the coming of Christ to display the glory of God and the salvation of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, that the last would be first. Second, that knowledge of the Bible does not keep us from being complacent. It doesn't. I know plenty of people who know all, they could whip any one of us in Bible trivia, and their faith is trivial. What good does it know, what does it mean to know something if it doesn't affect how you live? For you to say, I know that's true, but I'm not going to do that. I know that's right, I'm not going to do that. I know that's what I should do, I'm not going to do it. Third, we must actively seek, actively seek, actively seek to live out biblical truth, which leads us to true joy and worship. If you're not active in seeking after these things, if you're not uh, using the means, the ordinary means of grace to, to grow, if you're, you're not seeking after the things of the Lord to glorify him, um, there's all kind of stuff you're going to find, but it won't be, it won't be joy and happiness. It will not be the peace that surpasses all understanding. Listen to what Greg Keener says as we close out this morning. He says, without condoning astrology, Matthew's narrative challenges his audience prejudice against outsiders to their faith. Even the most pagan of pagans may respond to Jesus if given an opportunity. Are we giving opportunities? Are we living in such a way that the glory of the Lord is is, is evident to our coworkers, our neighbors, our families? Are, are we willing to do what Scripture called us to do? This is the amazing thing to me of all the things that people get concerned about. I, I never, and don't send me an email about this just to kind of so I'll shut up about it and never say it again, unless you genuinely believe this. But I never, in, in my history of pastoral ministry and, and the pastors I know, I've polled them. So you've got a collection of probably almost 150 years worth of experience, no one has ever sent an email and said, I don't think we seek to share our faith enough. I, I, don't, I don't think we are, 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 are pushing hard enough to share the gospel with people. That's never the email that comes. You know what they are? All kind of other stuff that ain't Biblical. All kind of other stuff that just don't even make no sense sometimes. Compared to that, when that's what we ought to desire, when that's what we were designed for, when that's what the church is, when that's the Missio Dei, when that's the Abrahamic covenant, that is the purpose for which Christ came, that is the purpose for which the church exists. So as we close out this morning, I, I pray that you will honestly take time to ask the Lord, what, what am I seeking? What's, what, what devil do I know that's kind of overshadowing me and keeping a low view of your scripture and obedience to it? And what am I going to find if I keep down that path? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you would allow pagans such as the Magi to come. Thank you that you would allow pagans such as us to worship this morning and the spirit of truth 
because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. May we not take lightly or in any way, shape, or form presume upon your grace to think that we can do with it as we will. Lord, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. God, my desire is to, is to bow and confess as a child of the king and not as one who is being judged. My desire is for all those around me that that would be true. Would you stoke a fire within me to live out the truth of your gospel and glorify you where I live, work, play, and serve, and all of us? Would you be so kind to this congregation as to give us the opportunity to celebrate those, someone, anyone going from darkness to newness of life that would take a journey such as the Magi took? They just heard a little bit enough to stoke their imagination and then be led to your word and then from your word to the actual one of whom the word speaks, Jesus, the Davidic king, the Christ. God, may we seek what glorifies you this Advent season and may we find fruit of the Spirit as a result. Set us free from the devils that we know, from the freedoms that we think that we have, from the tyranny that promises what it cannot provide. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.